It's good to see you here tonight. We're, we're missing a few tonight, and uh, we have some out of town, and uh, I guess morning them are getting up at 4 o'clock or something like that to go to Amarillo tomorrow. Uh, we're glad you're here. We're glad that we're together today, and we're glad to be able to study again. I just want to remind you of some things that we've talked about thus far, and we're not going to go back and read a lot of things, uh, but just as a reminder, some of the differences that we've seen in this Gospel of John has been that John's focus is really on who Jesus is, not just what he did. And so as we go through the Gospel of John, we see Jesus making statements like, I'm the life, or I am the light, or I am the door, or I am the resurrection, uh, or I am, which is probably the greatest statement that he makes in this Gospel when he reveals to uh, his opposers, his adversaries, that he is the I am, the great I am, that he is God. And so in this chapter, we have another statement of Jesus where he says, I am the vine. And that's going to be much of the focus of our lesson tonight. So as we look at this, just as a reminder, in John 13, Jesus begins to start preparing his disciples for the fact that he's leaving. He's going to go and they're going to deliver him into the hands of, of sinners and they're going to crucify him and he's going to be killed. And they're distressed about this. They're thinking, you know, about Jesus leaving and, and the sorrow and the loneliness and all the, the fear and everything that that would bring about in their life. And so Jesus offers them some words of comfort in John 14, which Justin uh, studied with us last week. He explains to them that I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to leave the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come in my name. And he's going to remind you of everything. He's going to be your comforter. And he continues this discussion until he gets to this statement where he says... I am the vine. So we're going to go through John 15, 1 through 10 to begin, and then uh, we're going to go in and out of some different places uh, in other writings and in, uh, also in 1 John. We're going to spend a little bit of time in 1 John tonight. And I want you to think of 1 John as the application of the truths in the Gospel of John because that's really what it is. John writes about Jesus in, in his gospel, and then in 1 John, it's the application of all the things that he taught us and told us about that happened during Jesus' ministry. So we're going to take some time to get a little bit more details in John's first epistle tonight also. Okay, John 15, verse 1. Jesus not only says, I am the vine, but he says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. So while Jesus doesn't make, there's no parables in John's gospel, by the way. Not one single parable. But this analogy is, is an analogy. It's not necessarily a parable about the kingdom, but there is an analogy here that Jesus makes of him being the true vine and the father being the vine dresser. Well, that's very, a very simple concept to us. We understand what a vine dresser does. He tends the garden. He tends the vine. He, he's doing the work of the garden. So Jesus reveals that to us. So let's not lose that in the analogy. He says every branch. So now we've got another part of this vine, the vine. We, we would think of vine maybe as the beam of a tree, the main part of a tree. It's, it's the center of life. It's what uh, 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 gives all of the branches its life and vitality. And that's the analogy he's making here. So he says every branch, notice... In me, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, that's the father, the vine dresser, 
takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, it says he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. And then he says this, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So let's break this down before he moves on. There's a couple of different things I want to notice here. Number one, uh, if you look at the idea of pruning and cleaning, that sounds like two different things. But actually the word prunes here is kathario in the Greek. And the word clean is actually katharos, which is the root word of this word prune. So this word that's translated prunes comes from this word. They both mean the same thing. They're very similar words. And here's what Jesus is saying. When somebody bears fruit in me, the Father prunes it so that it can bear more fruit. Why? Because that's God's design. That people who bear fruit for him also bear more fruit. How? Through this purging process. And Jesus says you're already pruned, that is you already have been uh, tended to so that you will bear much, much more fruit than you would by yourself. And it's because of the word which I've spoken to you. So let's think about pruning for a moment. Why would you prune something? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a crazy plant lady like my wife. You already know that, so I can get away with saying that. Um, but, you know, she used to not have a green thumb. She used to kill plants. She's, she's told me that. But I'll tell you, everything in our, in our house looks pristine. I mean... She goes and she tends to it. She goes and cuts stuff off. She removes stuff from her plants when she sees something dying. We had one plant that, that she named Hannibal because it was trying to take over all the other plants and kill them. I mean, it spread out everywhere and tried to destroy everything. And she had to move this plant. She had to get it away from all the other plants. I mean, there's a lot of work to tending plants. Well, think about this analogy he's making about people, about people, about branches. You know, branches don't always do what you want them to do. They just don't. And he says there's some branches that they die. They don't bear fruit. And so they, he cuts them off. And what happens to these things? He removes them for a reason. They're hurting the tree. They're harming the tree. They're not doing their job. But he said when you've got a branch that's performing its function, he says the father still has to do some work to it too. He has to prune it. And I'll tell you, we need to be pruned. There's a process that we talk about, about sanctification that the Lord performs in us to remove the things that might otherwise harm the plant. And so he prunes it. Why? So that it can bear more fruit. And that's the point he's making. But he uses this idea here. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. So then he goes into this phrase, abide in me. So here's why he gives the analogy. I am the vine and you are the branches. And so abide in the vine. Why? Because branches don't live outside the vine. He says, abide in me, and I look in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide it in me. So if you cut a branch off of a tree and it falls down, you know what it does? It doesn't bear fruit anymore. It won't grow fruit. It'll dry up, it'll wither, it'll die. That's his point that he's making. So he says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he says he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and are thrown, uh, thrown them in the fire, and they are burned. This is a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing of things not being useful, of what happens. What do you do with something that's not useful? He says, well, first you cut it off, and then you throw it where it belongs, in the fire. That's a foreshadowing. Unless we think that's a foreshadowing, we're going to get into that just a little bit more later. But here's the point that Jesus is trying to make, okay? So he gives them these words of comfort in chapter 14, and now he's encouraging them. Because life is about to get very difficult for these guys. It's going to get very difficult. And he's saying, you've got to stick with me. You've got to be loyal. You have to abide in me. 
You have to be strong and understand if you leave me, there's no life out there. If you abide in me, now listen to this relationship that he makes. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. So let's go back to this thought for a minute. If you abide in me, what does that mean? If you abide in me, let's go back for a moment. Okay. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. How do you know that you're abiding in Christ? Because you're bearing much fruit. So let's go back. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So there's a relationship between all these things. How is it that we bear fruit being attached to the vine? It's very simple. He makes it very simple. If my word abides in you. But he's going to take it further than that. It's not just about knowing his word. Not just about understanding or remembering his word. He says, as the father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. So now he changes it. He doesn't just say abide in me. He says abide in my love. Well, what do you mean by that, Jesus? He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in in his love. So here's the relationship. This is what he's getting them to. Stay faithful. Keep my word. Do what I have told you to do. And if you do that, then me and the Father are going to make our home with you. We're going to make our abode with you. Remember when Justin was talking about that last week? We'll make our abode with you. What's he say here? Abide in me. We'll abide in you. My Father will abide in you. If you do what? If you stay faithful, if you keep my word. Notice 1 John chapter 2 where John very clearly and concisely expounds on this idea when he begins to write this first epistle when he says this now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments doesn't that sound just like what we read it's exactly what we just read notice he goes on to say this he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoever keeps his word truly the love of God is perfected in him now listen by this we know that we are in him same language he who says he abides in him, notice, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Look at the language that he uses. We know him. We are in him. We abide in him. That's a relationship that he's describing. And that's what Jesus is talking about in John 15. There's a relationship, a connection that I have with you. And you need that connection because outside that connection is death and destruction. But if you're connected to me, then you have life and you'll bear much fruit and you'll glorify God in your life. But notice the negative language. He says, whoever says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. That is strong language from the apostle that we know as the apostle of love. <laughs> he says, if you don't keep his word and you say you know God, you're a liar. We'd get, we'd get offended if someone told us we were a liar, right? But that's the language he uses. Why? Because it's the truth. It's the truth. Look at verse, uh, at verse 5. Whoever keeps his word, notice, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And we talk about the perfect love of God a lot, right? And God's love is absolutely perfect. It's perfect. But what does he say here? How is the love of God perfected in a disciple, in a believer, when we abide in his word, when we keep his word, when we abide in him, when we follow him, when we walk just as he walked, as he says here, walking 
like Jesus. I'll tell you, we have cheapened the grace of God when we tell people, all you need is God's love and then do whatever you want. That it cheapens the grace of God. It cheapens the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God has called his people to holiness, to follow him, to stay faithful and to stand up for the truth. Now, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but this is, this is the truth, friends. This is the truth. And this is what John tells us. That's what these men were going to be commissioned to do. In 1 John chapter 4, 16, it says, And we know, we have known and believed the love of God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So he, now he's going to expand on that idea, and you see the relationship again. Abiding in the love. How do we abide in the love? By keeping his commandments, by following him. God abides in us. We know the love of God. Now look at verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, because perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Now here's, here's one of these statements that we've cheapened. We say, well, this says that per- God's perfect love casts out fear. Well, we're missing the last part of it, though. Someone who fears, he says, has not been made perfect in love. It isn't just about God's love being perfect. It's about the relationship of God's perfect love being in us. Being in us. And when God's love is perfected in us, when we are truly his disciples, we don't fear seeing God. We don't fear standing before God. We'll have boldness in the day of judgment. He says fear involves torment. And he's not saying if you ever fear anything that you're not made perfect in love. He's not talking about fearing spiders or fearing snakes or fearing a bear attacking you out. I would fear a bear. Would you fear a bear? Is that because you're not made perfect in love? No, it's not about that. It's about being in the presence of God. It's about knowing God. Knowing he's what? Our father. How do you know God's your father? Well, that's also in this chapter. How do you know if Satan's your father? That's also in this chapter. And we're going to get to that here in a moment. John 15, 11. This is why Jesus tells us all these things. I, these things I've spoken to you, listen, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Your joy may be full. Notice this relationship again. I've said this so that my joy may remain. What's he mean? When I leave, my joy will stay. It'll remain in you. Not only will it remain in you, it'll be full. How how are you going to have joy when you know he's leaving? When you know he's about to go die? How are you going to have joy? What is the joy? Going back to 1 John 5, notice what John says. He says, these things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. What did John say here? I wrote these things so you could know, not think, not wish for, but know that you have eternal life. And what greater joy is there than knowing that? Because I'll tell you something, the apostles... When the time came and Jesus was taken, they fled for their life. They were fearful. But after he was resurrected, you know what they did? They stood up in the face of kings and noblemen and said, Go ahead and kill us. We don't care. We're going to keep preaching Jesus. You know why? Because their joy was full. But it wasn't in this world. That wasn't the joy that they had. There's joy in this world. There is. There's joy and blessings in Jesus Christ here and in this world. But the joy that he's talking about, the joy that's unspeakable, the joy that would fill them up is the joy of the comfort of knowing that he is life and in him is life and that he promises life. 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, this is some not Texas language here. This is Bible language that we're using here. So we're going to look at this for a moment because we don't use phrases like earnest expectation. What's he saying? Earnest expectation. He's saying we have a desire and a hope. We know we're expecting to be glorified and become the sons of God. You say, I thought we already were the sons of God. This is a different usage of the phrase. He's talking about when we're glorified, being truly the sons of God in every way. We're eagerly waiting for that. Why? Because this world, this time has suffering. That's what he says. There's suffering in this present world. But it's not worthy to be compared with the glory the glory, so it's, it's like the sun and a flashlight. And if you're in the dark, a flashlight is very bright. And you can use a flashlight. And, and if it's dark, you're glad to have a flashlight because you actually have some type of light source. But you take a flashlight in the noonday sun, a flashlight has no function in the noonday sun. And yes, the sufferings, they're very bright like a flashlight if you want to look at it that way. But the truth is, compared to the glory that's going to be, be revealed in us, the sufferings are nothing compared to the eternity of glory. And that's his point here. And that's where our hope should be. That's where our joy has to remain. Because our joy, this is a joy that brings about peace in the most stressful and seemingly hopeless situations. Why? Because it's certain. That's why. That's what he's saying. It's certain. It's, it's not a, there might be eternal life for the faithful. There might be heaven. There might be a mansion. No, there's life. There's a mansion. There's eternity. It's coming. It's an earnest expectation. It's not something we go, well, I hope that happens. It's, it's going to happen. And you can know that. So what would happen if you took that away? Peter said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a lively hope or a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. Listen, reserved in heaven for you. When you make a reservation, you expect to show up and have your reservation, right? I do. If I make a reservation somewhere and I show up and they say, I'm sorry, we don't have your reservation. I'm a little upset about that. I made a reservation. He said it's reserved in heaven for you. Who's he talking to? The saints. The saints that were suffering, the saints that were going through persecution. He was telling them, hard times are happening right now. It's the same thing Jesus was telling his disciples. Hard times are happening. They're going to happen to you. But know something. You have life. You have an inheritance, an eternal reward. And he says in verse 5, who are kept by the power of God. No one's going to take it away. No one's going to strip it. No one's going to undo it. God is holding it by his eternal power and glory. And notice what that is. He says, through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's not about salvation that happens when we're baptized. That's a salvation in of itself. But he's talking about eternal salvation, the redemption of the body when we are glorified with Christ in heaven. We usually stop right here, but I want to keep reading in 1 Peter chapter 1 for a moment. And I want to notice what else he says in 6 through 9. He says, in this... You greatly rejoice. Sometimes we miss words. I don't want us to miss a word here. In this. In what? In this fact that you have an incorruptible reward waiting for you. In this, he says, we greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, Though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he mean, the revelation of Jesus Christ? The second coming. 
He says, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice, listen, with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, sometimes when we, as preachers, we talk about this right here, the trying of your faith, the working of our faith, the, the, the working of sufferings, all those things. A lot of times we focus on the, the immediate effect of those things, and rightly so. There are some immediate effects of that. There's wisdom gain, there's patience and strength that come as a natural result of the suffering. But honestly, if there wasn't a resurrection, then who cares? Who cares? I'm not going to suffer if there's no resurrection. What, because of some life lesson that I'm just speaking humanistically here. If there's no resurrection, then who cares? I'm not trying to grow. And this is all in view of that. When he talks to them about the trying of your faith, well, what's the point? Because we want to get to heaven. We want to please God. We want to honor him. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. And I lose sight of that. I'll be honest with you, I lose sight of that. When times get tough sometimes, my mind does not go to, Ian, there's an eternity, there's a, a, a glory that's awaiting you for all of eternity. I can't even fathom eternity, but, but when I think about that, I'll tell you, I'm not as shaken, but, but I do always go there, I wish I did. Sometimes things get really rough, your mind gets really focused on something, and you don't think about that. And I'll tell you, without that, this is what he says, in this life, if, if in this life we have hope in Christ... We are of all men most pitiable. I want you to really think about that. If there's no resurrection, if that's not our joy, then we are pitiful. We're pitiful. I'll tell you why. Because other people, they're doing what feels good. That's what they're doing. They're doing what feels good. Think about this. You remove eternal life from the promise, we are wasting our time. That's what we're doing. But Christians live a life of self-denial in view of the vast eternity. They live a life of forgiveness and mercy in view of a vast eternity. We all control our emotions. Why? In vast of a view of, of, of a eternity. We even accept injustices. Why? In view of a vast eternity. You know why? Because eternity is much greater than the sufferings. And I'm not called. I'm not called to do what feels good. But I'll tell you, if there's no resurrection, I'm going to do what feels good. If there's no reward, I'm going to do what I want. Because who cares? And that's his point. Eternal life is it's our linchpin. It's the linchpin of our faith. The resurrection is our hope. It is our joy. It's everything to us. And without that, life will swallow you up. It'll kill you. It'll destroy you. Because life's hard. But I'll tell you, when you think about the glory of no pain, no aging, no need, no want, no destroyed relationships, no nothing that's negative, I'll tell you, that's hope. That is hope. And if you believe that and you have that, you've got everything. And that is joy unspeakable. I feel inadequate to even express the type of joy that that is. John 15 verse 12, he says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. So he shifts it from him loving us and us loving him to us loving one another. Guys, you've got to stick together. You've got to love each other. Think about him giving them this pep talk as, he, as he's telling them, you've got to be faithful to me, you've got to abide in me, you've got to continue to do what I've said, but also you've got to love each other. You have to love each other. And he says, greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Some would look at that and say, well, that seems very self-serving. Of course, Jesus would be friends with people who did what he said, but notice what he says after that. No longer do I call you servants. 
for a servant does not know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends for all things that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. He's saying, look, the reason I've called you friends is because look at what I've shared with you. It's not just about you doing my commandments. Look at what I've given you. Everything God's given to me, everything the Father's given to me, I've given it to you. It's yours. You're my friends. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Isn't that what Jesus just said? No greater love has a man than someone who would lay down his life for his friends. That's the greatest love that man's ever been shown. And he said, we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. So this connects something for us, doesn't it? Jesus says here, you've got to love one another as I have loved you, even if that means you have to die for each other. And I'm going to tell you something. They did. They did. They laid their lives down for each other. They laid their life down for Jesus. They laid their life down for the gospel. And I think sometimes we talk a real good game about this, that we would die for each other. But you know what? Sometimes we won't even lay down our pride for each other. And we think we'd lay down our life for each other. We won't even lay down our time for each other. But we'll lay down our life for each other. Here's what he says. Whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God dwell in him? You know, that's a rhetorical question when you think about it. God is a God of love and such a God of love, he gave us the very best. He laid down his life. And he says, when you look at your brother, your sister, you see they have need and you don't help them, the love of God is not in you. You won't even share your physical things. He shared his life for you. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Two days ago, I was in need and my brother loved me and gave me what he had. And I'll tell you something, it, it's meaningful. It's meaningful. Because I'll tell you, he didn't have to. He could have said, it'll work out. Just give it some time. But it's meaningful. But I'll tell you, when you do see somebody shut up their bowels of compassion from you, they shut up their heart, and you know that they could, and they don't. It hurts, doesn't it? It hurts. You think it doesn't hurt Jesus to watch his people not love each other? That doesn't bother him when he laid down his life? Jesus did not give his life so we could hate each other. He did not give his life to cleanse us so we could be self-centered and self-absorbed. Jesus gave his life so we would be like him and we glorify God through the same selflessness that he showed to the world as we take over being the light for the world. That's who he's called us to be. Look, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Verse 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, now, don't get some Calvinist overtone here. This isn't about predestination. This is not about salvation. He's talking about choosing them. That's why there's a TV show out there called The Chosen. It's about the apostles. They're the chosen. He chose them. To do what? To be his ambassadors. I chose you. You, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you so that you should go bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask, in the uh, ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, listen, that you love one another. Why do you tell them that? You think about this. I'll tell you, this happens. It happens to men. I mean, we're just, we're, we're, we're human. What happens when you put a bunch of men together in a room? Somebody tries to be the boss. <laughs> it always happens. Somebody tries to take over. Somebody tries to seize power. Somebody try. You, you get it. You think the apostles were immune to that? Well, go back and read the Gospels where John and James come to Jesus and say, hey, grant us that we get to sit on your right and left hand. And what happened to the other apostles? They're mad. You know why? Because that's men. You know what he says? You didn't choose me, and don't forget that. I chose you, so don't look at each other as though you chose me. I chose you, and you love one another. You love one another. Stick together, guys. You have to stick together. If the world hates you, 
You know that it hated me before I hated you. Boy, that took a quick turn, didn't it? I love you. God loves you. Love me and love each other. Why? Because the world will hate you. And when it does, you just understand it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. We just sang a song a minute ago. Brother Riley led a song, This World is Not My Home. That comes from this, this right here. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you. Why? Because the, the world loves its own. Yet because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. He draws a line and he says, look, whoever's keeping my word, they're going to keep yours. And what's he mean by yours? I'm sending the comforter. He's going to remind you of everything I said. People that follow the apostles' teachings, who are they truly following? They're following Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was following the Father. He's making a connection. You're going to know who's of the world and who's not of the world. Because the world's going to hate you. But the ones that abide in me, they're going to keep my word and they're going to keep your word. They're going to follow your word. You know, I would remind us that when we're doubting the apostles and we're doubting their writings, who chose them? Did they choose him or did he choose them? Did God get it wrong? Did he get it wrong? Did he get it wrong when he sent the Spirit to inspire these men? Did they get it wrong? Is that the God you serve? A God that's not in control? A God that says, I'm going to give you my word so that you know everything that's true, but then somehow allow man and his corruption to foul it all up? Because that's not the God I serve, and I hope it's not the God that you serve, because God is in control. And Jesus chose these men, chose them to preserve his word. James chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, Adulterers and adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, this has been gravely misunderstood by people to say you can't have friends outside of the kingdom. You can't be friendly with someone. You can't have a relationship with someone outside of the kingdom. That's not what he's saying. He said you can't be a friend of the world. What's that mean, a friend of the world? A friend of the world. Philippians chapter 3, 18. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Let's back up for a minute. Whoever therefore wants to make, be a friend of the world makes himself a what? Of God. Enemy of God. Listen to what he says here. Enemy. See that language? They're the enemies of the cross of Christ. Who? Whose end is destruction. Whose God is their belly. You know what he's talking about? People who do what feels good. That's what he's talking about. People who follow their own lusts. Who have no authority in their life. Who have no Lord in their life. Who have no, they're, they're living in lawlessness we would say. Whose glory is in their shame. I know that's a sort of a, a strange way to phrase it. But what he's saying is they glory in things that should be shameful. They glory in things that should be shameful. Brother Lee brought up a verse when he was here. Proverbs 28 and 4. That whoever doesn't keep the law, they praise the wicked. But those who keep the law, they contend with them. They contend with them. You can't be a friend of the world. That's his point. You've got to choose a side. You've got to abide in me. You can't abide in the world and abide in me. Because I brought truth. I brought light to the world. I've told you what's wrong. I've showed you what's holy. You can't go live in unholiness. You cannot be a friend of the world. You cannot praise the wicked. You cannot say that things are okay, that God says are abomination. You can't do that. You know why? Because you align yourself with the enemies of God and you become an enemy of God. You can't abide in Christ and celebrate the wickedness of the world. You can't do it. Why? See, this is attached. It's verse 19. Look at verse 20. Why? Because our citizenship is in heaven. 
from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Where does it go right back to? Eternal life. If we're going to sing it, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Let's live it. Let's live it. Let's not be citizens of this world. Let's not be tied up in this world. Let's be citizens of the kingdom. Jesus says this in John 15, 21, but all things, all these things, they will do to you for my namesake. This isn't just about being persecuted. I mean, people are persecuted every day. There's injustice that happens every day. The injustice and persecution he's talking about is what's attached to being faithful and abiding in him. It's a different type of persecution. It's being persecuted because you're abiding in Christ. And you know why he said they do that? Because they do not know him who sent me. Now, this is a very exclusive statement that Jesus makes here that the world doesn't like. And I'll tell you why the world doesn't like Christianity. Because Jesus was exclusive. This is what he said. I am the truth, right? I'm the way. I'm the life. And no one comes to the Father, that's God, except by me. That's exclusive. What's he say here? He says, you know why? You know why they do this? They don't know God. They don't know God. You know why they don't know God? He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not have no sin. But now they have no excuse for the sin. He who hates me hates my father also. That's very exclusive. If you hate Jesus Christ, you hate God. That's what Jesus said. You hate God. You say, hold on, let's, let's deal with that middle verse there. Yeah, let's, let's deal with that. Because that's very important. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but sometimes the Bible uses what's called hyperbole. That, that is, it's, it's, a, it's a means of saying something that's huge and great to illustrate a point. Now, is Jesus saying, if I'd never told them these things, that they would have never had any sin? Well, he told them over and over, you've got sin, right? They did, they did things against the law before Jesus got here. That's not his point. Here's what he's saying. They don't have an excuse. They don't have an excuse. They saw the works I did. They saw them. I showed them that their behavior was wrong, and they have zero excuse. They're guilty. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated me and my father. Why'd they hate God? You're wondering, who's he talking about here? His enemies. And it wasn't the Gentiles. He's talking about the Pharisees, the scribes, those that were aligning themselves against him to try to kill him. And what's he say? They hate God. You know why they hate God? Because God elevated Jesus. And they hate Jesus. And if they hate Jesus, they hate God. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which was written in their law. They hated me without a cause. You know, there's a certain accountability that comes with knowledge. I think we understand this. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 11. I know this is a little bit small, so if you're in the back, can't read that, I apologize. It says, then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. That's what we're talking about. Jesus said, if they had not seen the works that I'd done that were like none other, they'd have had no sin. But look at what he says here to the same people. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And he said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. So do you think it's going to be tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment? No, that's hyperbole. You know what he's saying? You think those people were wicked? Well, let me tell you something. They were wicked and they were sinners, but they didn't have the Son of God doing mighty works. 
And if they had, they'd have repented, but you don't. You've seen the works. You know why? Because you're more wicked than them. That's what he's saying. Because if they'd have seen what, I, what you'd seen, they'd have repented. They'd have changed their ways. They'd have changed their ways. And then he brings up something that would be very offensive, right? And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works were done in you that had been done, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. He said, you're more wicked than the Sodomites. <sighs> that probably hurt. And I'll tell you, we know and we've seen and we've heard. And if we've known and we've seen and we've heard the things of Jesus Christ and we've not repented, take heed to this statement right here. Because when we know and we've seen and we've heard, there's no excuse for us. No excuse at all. We know. Going back to John chapter 9, this is something we picked up earlier in the book of John. When you remember that the blind man who had been born from his birth, born blind from his birth, was healed. Jesus began to make some analogies about blindness. And they said, are we blind also? The Pharisees did. And he said, if you were blind, you would no, have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. Same thing. If you're going to say, hey, we have understanding. We know. We see. We know the truth. We have discernment. Well, that makes you guilty. Don't make you better. It makes you guilty because you didn't repent. We're going to finish right here with John 15, 26, and 27. As Jesus ends this chapter, notice he reminds them again of the coming of the Comforter, the coming of the Helper. And he says, When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you will bear witness because you have been from me, uh, with me from the beginning. They're the branches of the vine. And they've been pruned. You know what they're going to do? They're going to go bear fruit for God. You know how they're pruned? Through the word that Jesus spoke. He's told them the comforter's coming. The comforter's going to reveal. The comforter's going to remind you. He's going to equip you to go and to spread what I have told you. To bear much fruit for me. You must abide in me and be my branches and bear much fruit for God. Friends, tonight we offer the invitation of Jesus Christ. If you're not in him, I want you to know there is no life outside of him. There's none. No life outside of Jesus Christ. And if you have left Jesus Christ, you can come back to him. That's, that, that's not what the analogy is about. That, oh, well, you've been cut off because you weren't bearing fruit. And now you just, No. See, God's patient. He's not slack concerning his promise. He commands all men everywhere to repent. And if you've got life in your lungs today and your heart's beating, I'll tell you, there's still a chance for you to come back to God. And he is ready to receive you with open arms. Friends, come to Jesus tonight if you need him. Come have a seat as we stand and we sing. Amen.